A reading from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they had chosen their places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited both of you will come to you and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The Gospel of the Lord. Our Father, we, we come before you this morning. Um, we trust that... Uh, that as we've uh, sung this morning, that you, uh, you're close by, that you will, will hold us fast. Um, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We ask that you would send your spirit upon all of us, uh, give us wisdom, give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, um, that we would uh, not just learn about you, but that we'd encounter you, um, that you would uh, change our hearts where they need to be changed, um, purify our minds um, where they need to be purified. Um, we ask that we'd uh, be more like Jesus. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So if you would turn to your go our gospel reading this morning, uh, it's in your bulletin. Uh, you'll see that uh, one last time this summer, we are back in the book of Luke. Uh, we're kind of in the middle part of the book of Luke. This time it's chapter 14. Uh, that's on page 10. So here we're jumping into Luke's record of Jesus's life right in the middle of a journey. Jesus is uh, on a journey moving south towards the city of Jerusalem. And it's the last time that he's going to make this journey before he is nailed to a cross and killed. If you were with us last month, uh, you'll remember we looked at a few different parts of this journey. Uh, we were listening in on Jesus as he showed his disciples and he showed us what it means and what it costs to follow him. The path of following Jesus, that's the life of a Christian, is demanding. 
It's often uncomfortable and, and sometimes it's confusing. Right? We often find Jesus challenging the assumptions of people around him and he challenges everyone. He says awkward and controversial things. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we are challenged by what he says and does. So we find Jesus in our passage this morning invited to a Sabbath feast at the home of a prominent religious leader, the home of a ruler of the Pharisees, we're told in verse one. The man is quite possibly a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And it's a big deal to be invited to this man's house. You think about if uh, like a bishop invites you over to his house for lunch after church, right? That's, that, that's a big deal. Now, now you'd think that someone like Jesus with a reputation for saying the stuff out loud that causes everybody to gasp and whisper to each other, did he actually say that? Um, you, you'd think he wouldn't be on the short list for a meal like this. Yet there's something compelling about Jesus that draws people to him. Some people are enamored by him hanging on every word. Some have a love-hate relationship with him. Some just want to ignore him and hope he goes away. And some people literally want to kill him. Some people are content to admire him from afar. Even some of the Pharisees uh, don't seem to know what to do with him. Immediately before inviting Jesus to this meal, we're told in chapter 13 of Luke that some Pharisees warn him to leave because Herod, the political leader of the time, wants to kill him. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning when it comes to Jesus, but can I encourage you to be honest with yourself about how you feel about him, even right at this moment? Are you a follower of Jesus? Do you want to be? Are you curious? Are the things that he says and does unsettling you and causing questions? Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're not. Um, sometimes he just unsettles us and causes questions when we really look at what he has to say. Now, now one of the things that has come up in the broader section of the Gospel of Luke that we've been dipping in and out of over the summer is that being a follower of Jesus impacts every part of our lives. The call to follow Jesus is open to everyone. But to everyone who responds to his call, there's nothing that can take priority over following Jesus. It's not that those other things in our lives aren't important. Things like our possessions or family obligations, our vocation, or issues such as ethnicity or gender. It's just that those things are reshaped and transformed as Jesus brings restoration to our lives by ordering those things around him. So in Luke 14, we find Jesus turning our attention to yet another aspect of our humanity that is shaped by being his follower, our relationships with other people. So relationships, uh, whether they're in business relationships or family relationships, whether they're romantic or casual, uh, if it's about having deep best friends, right, all these relationships are important. But these relationships can be unhealthy, um, and they can be manipulated for selfish reasons. And that's actually what we see examples of in our passage. We see destructive motivations for how we relate to other people, and we see Jesus exposing those motivations and pointing us to what frees us to truly love and honor others. 
So I'd like to suggest to you that what we see here is that, being, is that a follower of Jesus will have relationships that are motivated by three things, at least three things. There's three things that I see here. Um, the three things are humility, selfishness, and hope. So it's humility, selflessness, and hope. All right. I trip up because actually, we don't actually see those three things exhibited in our passage. Um, what we actually do see are examples of status seeking, and we see examples of selfishness. Um, and we see a desire for immediate recognition driving the actions of dinner guests. That's what Jesus is calling out. So let's take a look and, and see where all of this is in there. Jesus shows up at this Sabbath feast. Now, regardless of how some of the Pharisees felt about Jesus when they warned him to leave because Herod wants to kill him, we see the resolve of some of the most powerful and influential of the Pharisees to make Jesus conform to their expectations of what it means to follow God in the events surrounding the Sabbath meal. You see, Jesus has been invited to the meal. And this in itself is not shocking to us. Um, it's happened many times before. It seems Jesus is quite a good party guest. Um, his first miracle, after all, was turning water into wine at a wedding feast. Right? He seems like a guy you want to have around when you throw a party. But right away, we're told that the Pharisees are watching him carefully. Why? Well, for some reason, um, there's a man with dropsy present. Now, dropsy uh, is an illness where your body, uh, especially your limbs, will swell with excess fluid. And so the man is, is very noticeable, and it's obvious what he's suffering from. And the language used of watching uh, that uh, describes what the Pharisees are up to, um, it tells us that they're basically spying on Jesus. He's being set up. We don't know if the man was planted there or not, but the Pharisees are just too are not too concerned with the well-being of this man. Well, regardless of how the man ended up there, uh, the, these, these guys are prepared. Uh, the Pharisees have invited lawyers, and these lawyers are experts in religious law. These guys could easily pronounce what is permissible and what is not on a Sabbath day, which is a day of rest. And so by this point, it's, it's not really surprising what Jesus is going to do when confronted with someone in need of healing on the Sabbath. He's healed people repeatedly on the Sabbath in three or so years of ministry leading up to this. But Jesus is prepared too. He actually says a few words to the lawyers and Pharisees for which they actually have no response. He's read the room and, and he can sense the hostility that is present. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not, he asks. It's a very deliberate question. According to the rabbinic, that's the religious law that the Pharisees follow, unless it's a life or death situation, healing on the Sabbath was not permissible. But according to the law of Moses, that's actually found in the Bible, there was no such prohibition. So everybody remains silent in response to Jesus as he proceeds to go and heal the man. Now, now Jesus could have just left things there, but 
being Jesus, he, he pushes them a little bit further. He turns to them after healing the man and says, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? The unstated answer is that none of the religious, that, that none of the religious leaders can bring themselves to admit is that nobody would fail to help their son or, or even a farm animal in that sort of situation. But for some reason, these guys are blinded to the humanity of the man who had dropsy, who is surely more valuable than an ox. They're concerned with something else. What they're concerned with uh, becomes more evident to Jesus as they turn to the meal that is at hand. In verse 7, Jesus notices that those who were invited to the meal were going after the places of honor at the table. In that culture, uh, people would recline at a low table, no chairs being used, and the host would be at the head of the table, and the places of honor would be those that were closest to the host. So it's easy to identify who the most honorable person in the room is. Look who's sitting next to the host. Jesus scans the room and notes that everyone seems to think pretty highly of themselves because the seats of honor are filling up fast. These guys are concerned with their honor. Now, now to be concerned about honor, to be viewed honorably, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like, it's a good thing to be an honorable person. Um, I think, I think, if we were given the choice, we'd all want to be considered honorable. But something's off here in this situation. So Jesus does what he often does. He proceeds to tell everybody a parable. If you remember, a parable is not just a nice moral story or a creative way to say something. A parable amplifies what is in the hearer's heart. If you're open to God in your life, a parable fosters growth. If you're hostile to God, uh, a parable causes anger or confusion, um, or it reveals uh, any resistance that might be in our hearts. And Jesus is always concerned with what's in our hearts. The parable is quite straightforward in verses 8 to 11. Let me read it. It says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, honor, as we're seeing it here, is, is basically a recognition of the importance or character or esteem that's given to an individual by a group. There's different ways of showing honor in different contexts. In some cultures, uh, standing up when somebody enters into a room is a way of showing honor. Um, in others, uh, serving them first is how we honor them or show that they're honorable. In this context, um, it's given by seating position. And Jesus gives them some good words of wisdom here, actually. In fact, he's, uh, he's drawing directly from the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Proverbs in chapter 25. It, it, you can sum it up basically like, uh, don't assume that you're the most important or most honorable person, right? 
You don't take honor, you don't demand honor, you receive honor. So if you assume too much, you're gonna be knocked down a notch and it will be in front of everyone. So it's better to start low and be moved up. In our culture uh, today, we, we may not take part in meals in the same way as in our passage, but I think we have social habits that convey honor, even if that's not what we call it. And we have our own ways of pursuing honor, right? That communal recognition that reinforces our status and character and influence. We want to be invited to the right dinner at the exclusive restaurant, right? Or we get an invite to a gala where we can work the room and expand our networks. We value access to the right club or uh, an invite to a professional network. And it's so easy, we just fall into seeking out the place of honor that Jesus is actually calling out. I think if we're honest about it, uh, this is just a huge part of the appeal of living in New York City. But Jesus ends this parable with a word on humility. That's one of the things that should be driving our relationships. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In talking with the lawyers and the Pharisees, Jesus speaks against the impulse to exalt ourselves rather than wait for the affirmation of others. It is understandable that we might be tempted to think of the, his reference to humility as just a call to think less of yourself. But humility is not, woe is me, uh, I am merely a worm. Humility is seeing yourself properly, as you really are. And, as, and for a Christian, humility is seeing yourself as God sees you. And so for some of us, uh, humility does require us to be knocked down a few notches. We do think too highly of ourselves. But for others of us, humility is standing tall with dignity. And here's what I mean. When someone comes from a place of status or wealth or privilege, such as the Pharisees in our passage, the temptation is often to think of yourself more highly than you ought to, hence the warning against seeking out places of honor. But when you come from a background that is not looked upon highly, such as coming from poverty or disability, or if you have a family history that has slavery or servitude, your experience of humility is different. When you've experienced trauma, um, all of these things, the temptation becomes that you wrestle with inferiority. It's hard to believe that God would love you. And that's why I think the encounter Jesus has with the man with dropsy is so powerful here. Jesus was bestowing dignity on the man with dropsy when he healed him. So as we're starting to see that humility lies at the core of our relationships, um, or should lie at the core of our relationships, not just with each other, but also with God, um, Jesus, again, isn't content to just leave us there. He pushes in deeper with another challenge. Rather than being consumed with seeking honor in our social interactions, he challenges us to do something that is selfless. Jesus turns to the host of the dinner the man that invited him and says one of those things that most of us wouldn't say to a prestigious host. 
right? Is you know when you throw a party, you shouldn't invite your friends and family and rich neighbors, right? You know those people will most certainly repay you by inviting you back. Right? The host is probably looking around at all of his guests who are in the same class and social circles as he is, and and feeling uncomfortable. Now, you know, when you give a feast, invite those people who can't repay you, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, right? Can you feel the discomfort growing in the room? It's like Jesus is saying to them, remember that man with dropsy earlier in the evening, the man you tried to use to trap me in some legal controversy? Why is he not here? And what Jesus is doing is laying bare the selfish motives of the religious leaders and how they structure their relational circles. Jesus was bestowing dignity on the man with dropsy when recognition of that very dignity of a fellow human being was being withheld by the religious leaders under the guise of following the law, under the guise of wanting to look good before God. See, honor is not something you grab at. It's something that's given. But these religious leaders are grasping after not only honor in the eyes of other, but honor in the eyes of God. And they're so concerned with preserving their own honor, they walk all over the most vulnerable. So Jesus challenges them. When you have a feast, invite those very people that you think you're too good to hang out with. Especially the people with limited or no social capital. Treat everyone with dignity. And this is getting at a picture of what it means to be the church, to be the people of God. If we're only spending time with people who look like us, whether that's class, class or ethnicity, income bracket, profession, favorite sports team, you know, pick whatever subculture you gravitate to. It's an invitation to check what motivates your relationships. Now, now maybe you're feeling that in some of your relationships, you're more like the Pharisees than you'd care to admit. There's maybe a bit more selfishness and status seeking and desire for immediate recognition of how important you are present in your life. It's more there than, than there should be. You're not actually driven by selflessness and humility. Well, you're not alone, right? We all face this. But here we're also faced with a subtle temptation, right? The temptation is, well, I better do something about it. Okay, who do I not get along with in the church uh, here uh, or at work or at school? I better invite them over. Uh, well, maybe. Um, well, see, now we're all going to have really awkward conversations at coffee hour, aren't we? Um, see, see, here's where it's really easy to turn what we do into another way to try and look good before God, right? To earn our place before him. To be like the Pharisees, even when we're seeking to avoid being like them. It's not just about trying harder to love people you normally try not to think about. And so we come to the last thing to motivate us, and, and really the motivation that enables us to be selfless and humble. It's hope. Jesus points us to that in the last sentence of our passage. He says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Hope is not wishful thinking. For a, hope, for, for a Christian, hope is much deeper than that feeling that drives why you buy a lottery ticket in the hopes of winning the jackpot. 
Hope is anchored in the quality of what you are placing hope in. I began by highlighting that this passage that we're in is found in the section of Luke where we find Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem, to the place where he will be crucified. But at the end of Luke chapter 9, where where that reference is, Luke actually starts off this whole section by emphasizing that the the time that is drawing near is the time for Jesus to be taken up. That's Luke 9.51. This is a reference that points beyond Jesus dying on the cross, but to his rising from the dead, ascending into heaven as Lord over all creation, his defeat of death. The story of Jesus does not end with him nailed to the cross and killed. And the resurrection of the just, also known as the resurrection of the righteous, that Jesus refers to here, is something for us to look forward to if we are his followers. The Apostle Paul, another one of Jesus' followers who wrote quite a few letters that we have in the Bible, he writes later on in his first letter to the Corinthians this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then that is coming those who belong to Christ. Jesus, by defeating death through resurrection, has secured for us what we, we often call eternal life. We'll be raised to new life. And in that resurrection existence in the new creation with Jesus, that's where we will receive our reward. That's where we will truly be honored in the presence of Jesus. And it's when we are secure in knowing that a good, loving, gracious, and just God has promised us that even though we may not receive the recognition or prestige in this life for what we do, we will in the hereafter, in the life to come. Our hope is anchored in who God is, a God who is not distant and detached, but enters into the mess of our lives through Jesus, right? God's honor is tied to his willingness to embrace our humanity, our poverty, so that we can be raised to new life, that we can experience his honor. And Jesus is the one who is perfectly selfless and humble. We return to him again and again whenever we failed to be selfless and humble. And he's always faithful to receive us and to replace those selfish motives with a secure hope that drives what we do. So the challenge for us is is simple. Um, Sometimes it feels too simple. Um, We need to look at Jesus first, right? And then when we're secure in our future hope of resurrection that comes from Jesus, we're freed to experience selfless, humble relationships. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. 
And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.